Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Ho, 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 ho. I'm still in a Christmas spirit, brother. Well, it's time to get into the New Year spirit, and I guess we should tell everybody right away that this episode is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. That's NHTSA. And they're working hard to change the habits this holiday season and save some lives. Everyone knows about the risk of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. And let's take a moment here and look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the U S die every day in alcohol impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. And even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet too. And you can get arrested, incur huge legal expenses and possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? And this is especially important today on new year's Eve, plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If someone, you know, has been driving, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but there's one thing for sure. You're wrong. If you think it's no big deal, drive sober or get pulled over. And that is an important message today on new year's Eve, where I know a lot of people are going to be enjoying themselves tonight. And I imagine there's going to be some of that going on over at the Bischoff household. Fair to say, no, we're laying low. We're just going to, we, we never go out on new year's Eve. We just gave that up about 20 years ago. So we'll just, uh, probably make a little bit of crab leg dinner and some roasted garlic and maybe a glass or two of wine. And that'll be it. Well, there you go. I, uh, I know what we're doing at the end of the week and that's, uh, watching the new Japan pro wrestling super show wrestle kingdom. It's so timely that we're covering this Starcade 1995 today, because this is a new Japan versus WCW show. And it's the first time I've seen it in a long time. I wasn't watching wrestling back when this show happened, but I did sometime in maybe 97 or 98 stumble across a VHS for this, but I didn't even think I had seen it when we agreed to cover it. And it all came flooding back to me this week when I watched it before we get your takeaway on the show, let's circle back to last week. What was the feedback you got about our Starcade 94 episode where unbelievably Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake was in the main event. <laughs> A lot of feedback, and it's what you would expect it to be, and and I enjoy getting it, but I, I think clearly one thing we can all agree on, you know, in the, the world of wrestling is just like every other world, country music, you know, they've got certain types of country music fans don't like certain other types of country music and back and forth, and wrestling is certainly no different, but I think one thing that wrestling fans all agree on is it Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake was the most horrible choice for the main event on that pay-per-view. Uh, without question. You know, I mean, when you go back and you watch the tape and he's making these cartoonish facial facials on the outside of the ring. And I don't know, it's just way over the top laughable. And, uh, it's so eighties and cheesy, but, uh, thankfully you kept him employed for a long time after that. Uh, so. <laughs> You're such a dick. Yeah. But you know, Nick Patrick, you know, he can fuck up a finish. No problem. Um, Jackie doesn't want to do the job to, uh, Elizabeth. She's out of here, but old, whoever put Brutus in the main event still around. Okay. Anyway, you, you're done. You're not going to make me mad. I'm it just, it's impossible. I'm not going to go out. Well, I'm not going to close out the last podcast of the year, the last evening of the year, 
the, the last remnants of a great holiday week, I'm not going to let you push me to the point of getting pissed off. I'm just not. So you can try. You can take your little shots. You can do your little cutesy things. You can do your who booked this shit. You can do whatever whatever games you have up your 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 sleeve, Conrad. You can let them. You just play them all. You're not going to piss me off. Challenge accepted. Oh, <laughs> shit. I knew when I was about halfway through that, I was setting myself up. I said, shut up now. Why you can't? Well, I mean, I know you're going to have no problem putting me over. I'm really tan. I'm on vacation right now. So, uh, ah, finally uh, enlightenment. I like it. So, Hey, let's talk about it, man. Starcade 1995. We just passed uh, an anniversary for that show. It went down on December 27th. It's, uh, one of those in the municipal auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee. Of course, we've already covered 94. We've covered 96. Well, this rounds out the trilogy of Starcades in Nashville. It does a 0.36 buy rate, the second lowest buy rate in company history. That's roughly only 83,000 buys, a million and change for a company gross here. Uh, like we talked about in our Starcade 94 episode, this isn't exactly maybe the show that you would have hoped for, but it is an interesting concept. It's the World Cup of Wrestling. So it's a series of seven matches pitting seven WCW wrestlers against seven new Japan pro wrestling wrestlers. And whichever company wins four out of seven, of course, is going to be declared the winning company. And Sonny Ono is here representing new Japan in storyline. And he brings in seven guys for this and set your calendars, man, because this coming Friday, January 4th, just a few days from now. It's new Japan pro wrestling's largest event of the year. Wrestle kingdom 13. It's already sold out right there at the Tokyo dome, but I'm going to be watching on fight this year's wrestle kingdom. 13 main event features Kenny Omega defending his IWGP heavyweight title against Tanahashi. Plus the intercontinental champ, Chris Jericho is going to be defending that title against Naito also in action. Okada, Cody, the young bucks, and all the great stars of new Japan pro wrestling. Don't miss it. And fight is the place to see it all. All four hours of the live action are going down Friday, January 4th at fight.tv or on the fight app. Do what I did pre-order the wrestling event of the year. Wrestle kingdom 13 start time for all the action is 3 a.m. Eastern 12 midnight Pacific, but you can watch it live or on demand. As long as you've got the fight app, do what I'm doing. Download this app on your phone, get it on your Apple TV, your tablet, or just watch it over on fight.tv. But don't you dare miss this new Japan show. It's an interesting concept. We're going to break it down. We're going to beat it up. But whose idea was this? Oh, you know, I always hesitate to, to single out any one person for an, an idea because it's usually a, a collaboration of one way, one way, shape or form. This was probably more mine. Um, not, not that I'm trying to take credit for it, but I think we've discussed, you know, throughout the different episodes we've done so far this year that a lot of my goal, especially in 1995 was to make WCW make make create the perception that we were a larger, more international company than the WWF. It was just another way to distinguish ourselves from the competition. And this was really a, a manifestation of what had been going on for about a year or a year and a half as we grew closer to, to New Japan and started doing more and more things together. I think this year in '95. Uh, earlier in this year um, is when I went over to North Korea and brought Muhammad Ali with me uh, for New Japan and, and Antonio Noki for that event. So this was just another step in strengthening that relationship and broadening it. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, 
figuring out more about why this was the choice for Starcade and why so many other stars weren't there. I'm sure we'll, we'll break it down, but let's talk a little bit about the new Japan pro wrestling relationship. Uh, Sonny Ono is the, is the guy here in storyline. Was there a guy behind the scenes who helped facilitate this or was Sonny Ono really invaluable to that whole process? Well, no, I mean, Sonny was very important to it. Uh, I, I, I don't want to over stated or understated, you know, overstating it because he's a good friend of mine and everybody knows that. I also don't want to understate it you know, out of fairness to him and in fairness to the fans that really want to understand the deal. Um, Sonny was critical to the equation in that I spent a lot of time in Japan and many of the Japanese that I was doing business with in new Japan at the time didn't really speak English. Um, maybe could understand a little bit of it. I certainly didn't speak any Japanese. So Sonny being there whenever I went over there allowed for us to have a lot more in-depth conversations, a lot more meaningful and productive conversations than you would have in kind of the formal um, way that you know business had been done in the past where you know people didn't talk through their issues and challenges, which led to a lot of problems with New Japan and WCW. When I took over, it it wasn't like, hey, why don't we go, you know, broaden our relationship with New Japan? You know, WCW had been doing business with New Japan and had stiffed New Japan in, in a couple of different very um, major ways. So I, I not only had to go over there and try to create a good working relationship, I had to overcome a really bad one. And Sonny was very instrumental in that. But the deal was put together primarily through uh, myself and Brad Ringens. And Brad uh, trained under Vern Gagne. Uh, he wrestled, made the 80 Olympic team, the one that was um, – uh, boycotted by the United States, I believe, uh, spent some time in the WWE, uh, and then really just his career at that point was acting as a liaison between new Japan and the American talent. So there you go. Well, t- talk to me about why new Japan had been wronged or how they had been wronged, or at least the perception was that they had been wrong. Well, I think it comes down to communication. Um, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to really spend some time with my counterparts over in New Japan, um, the communication was really bad. Look, when you do business with Japanese, uh, and I'm sure this is true in other cultures around the world, but it's a very different – yes can mean no in, in, in Japan. In fact, it often does. You know, Negotiating is a process. And it's a completely different process than we would encounter here in the United States. And it's just because of the the culture and the way things are done. And I think the the cultural differences, the the language differences and barriers, uh, just the way business was conducted, I think led to just an overall complete breakdown of communication. And that always leads to bad blood in business. It's almost inevitable, right? So I I don't want to point fingers, you know, at any one side, there were issues on both sides of the equation, but the perception by new Japan and subsequently a lot of talent was that, you know, Bill Watts, when he was running WCW, uh, before me, uh, really stiffed them and reneged on some promises and things like that. And there were some financial issues involved and all kinds of that stuff, but I don't, I, w- I don't want to put it on Bill Watts. It may or may not been Bill. It could have easily just been, like I said, a breakdown of communication, but it didn't matter. I had to fix it. 
Okay. Well, I'm glad you eventually got around to blaming Bill because that's what I needed to hear. No, I didn't blame Bill. I did. I I specifically said it may or may not have been Bill's fault. It may or may not have been the Japanese. It may just have been a simple breakdown of communication, which often leads to this type of shit. You are putting words in my mouth, and I'm not going to let you do it, nor am I going to let you make me hot about it. Okay. So. They, the Japanese believed that the issue was with Bill Watts. They had heat with Bill. They had heat with WCW. Okay. Tiptoe we go. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the, the main event here and, and the way we're going to get there. It's going to wind up being a triple threat. Um, ultimately a triple threat wasn't the initial idea. I don't believe, but. We did, a, we did find a way to get there. And when you look at this on, on paper flares in the match, but he's not working in the earlier matches for the tournament. So the triple threat becomes sting flair and Luger with the winner advancing to face Randy Savage. So had sting or Luger won, they would have wound up working three matches. Flair doesn't have to work a new Japan match, but somehow still winds up working twice because he works with Macho Man, who also worked a new Japan match. Take me through the psychology of why Flair doesn't have to wrestle two matches before a title shot. I don't know that there's any psychology. And one of the things that I, I mean, I mean, I don't, there's no psychology that would support that decision. I mean, there are, I think there are, ways to look at this, you know, that would support a story. Now I, I just watched this, uh, episode, uh, a couple hours before you and I sat down to tape it. So it's all pretty fresh in my mind. And as often happens, this is a pay-per-view that occurred 23 years ago this week. It's one in which I was not really hands-on or even involved too much in the actual booking finishes, you know, that type of thing. Um, so, so much of this was just, oh man, I completely forgot that that even happened. Or for me, it was the first time I watched it in 23 years. Right. And I, you know, and I take notes when we do these shows because some things really stand out to me. And one of the things that I, you know, note that I made it myself is I typically don't like this type of a stipulation. I, I kind of, my overall umbrella is gimmick match. I just, you know, for me personally, I like a straight up mono on mono. Give me a great storyline. Give me a good guy. Give me a bad guy and entertain the hell out of me. That's me. And whenever you muck it up with, you know, triple headers, triangle matches, three ways, you know, whatever they call them, fatal four ways, it just kind of dilutes story to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I noticed was this, the way this match was stipulated, the rules in this match, I, I kind of liked it, which I found odd for me because it, as I'm watching it back now, and again, I'm looking at it now from a completely different perspective than I'm, I'm sure I did in 1995, but the stipulations, the, the way they were laid out could have led to some amazing storytelling in that match. I mean, it, it, it was a little complicated in the beginning when they laid it all out with the graphics and the voiceover and everything I, for the first 15 seconds. I was like, what in the hell? But then as it started, you know, coming together and making sense, I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And the way it laid out when I watched the match, it really was. And it could have been a lot more interesting than it was. 
So, and I just did, I just didn't answer your question about the logic behind not putting flair in for the entire card. There was none. Let's put it, let's call it that way. Okay. There was no logic. Um, allegedly he's working with a torn rotator cuff here, uh, but he's powering through, uh, it, does that even cross your mind when you're laying out a card like this? Or is it simply, we don't want to have anybody work three matches and we know flares going on. So that'll work. I mean, it may have been. If he was injured, certainly we wouldn't want to have taken any more risks with Rick than we needed to. But again, you know, just just think about it for a second. In any good story, you know, your baby face, let's call it Sting in this case, you know, is he's your underdog. He's got to fight against all odds, you know, to, to ultimately, you know, become that hero uh, and, and win the big prize. So the fact that Sting and Lex both had to, you know, work previous matches because of the format of this setup, um, this triangle match, um, it puts them at a disadvantage. It puts Rick at an advantage. There's a lot of fans that would have liked to see Rick win that. Um, and, and he did, but you know, it's, I just don't think it's as horrible as, or, or as flawed, I guess, as you're making it sound. I think it's interesting. I'm not saying it's necessarily flawed. I just didn't understand, you know, sort of what the logic was. Chat me up about, um, Savage as champion and, and all this, um, Savage as champion facing the winner of this triangle. Is that what you think you need to sort of, Hey guys, we've got great wrestling underneath with this new Japan concept, but I feel like in order to sell pay-per-views, we need a bankable, viable, proven pay-per-view draw. So we'll put Macho Man in the main event. Is that the strategy? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think I can't imagine that we ever did a pay-per-view where there wasn't a world heavyweight title on the line in one way, shape, or form. Um, it, it would only make sense. And I, we didn't go into this. I know I certainly didn't go into this thinking, okay, let's make this a, a WCW versus New Japan You know, from top to bottom pay-per-view that wasn't the intent at all going on and the fact that we had you know the world heavyweight title story playing on the same pay-per-view wasn't because we didn't have any confidence in the new japan wcw angle or the world cup or wrestling angle it's just that it wasn't intended to be the only thing we did well i mean you are running seven matches on there and and i don't want to go down this road too far but you did have a lot of pay-per-views where the world title wasn't on the line. Um, that wasn't totally uncommon for that to be the case, but let's get into some good news at the time, because this is uh, this is a big deal. Meltzer wrote after seven years in business and an estimated 30 million in losses, world championship wrestling turned its first profit in 1995. The profit said to be rather small came despite added expenses of producing a live television show weekly. And in a sense, even saying the company was profitable should have an asterisk beside it. As part of the large corporate structure, there are ways of putting expenses on others' books. And it is rumored that perhaps the biggest expense of all, the Hulk Hogan salary, is largely on the Turner Home Entertainment books. <laughs> Go ahead. It's it, we touched on this before. It, 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 Dave can't help himself. He he's just it's in his DNA to be a fucking idiot. That nothing he we were profitable. If there was anybody in, you know, read Guy Evans' book, listen, you know, read the quotes directly from, you know, one of the executives in Turner Finance that didn't work for me, by the way, that worked for Turner Finance. Um, Read it. It's all right there. If anybody was dumping 
expenses anywhere. They were being dumped on us and we were being asked to absorb them. So Dave's knowledge of or perception of, in which case, you know, in Dave's case, there's no delineation between the two. If he perceives it, it must be true, um, is wrong. It's just wrong. You know, we, we made money in 1995. And by the way, I predicted we were going to make money in 1995, uh, late 94, in a, in a meeting that I had with Harry Anderson, who is the head of Turner Finance, when I bet him $1 that in 1995 we were going to turn a profit. And I did that right in front of Bill Shaw. And, and I won the bet. And Harry Anderson – um, the head of finance at that time, which is kind of a big deal. He was the, he was, he was it other than Vicki Miller. It was him. Um, he actually came to our Christmas party in 95 at a little uh, Mexican restaurant. We were all getting together in and got down on one knee and handed me that dollar bill in front of all the WCW employees. It was a really good sport. Um, but it had nothing to do with, Hey, let's go shift our expenses over to, Oh, I don't know. Let's see. Who should we dump those on? Turner sports. They'd love to have expenses. They had nothing to do with. I know they'll go along with it. Right. It's it's a silly thought. It was a silly thing for him to write, but it was typical. He's not done because I found this fascinating. In addition, Turner broadcasting now pays WCW approximately 4 million per year for its three cable television shows, which obviously makes all the difference in the world. As if that was done during the Bill Watts or Jim Hurd eras, the company would have at least come close to profitability for several years. Let's say you, he's, you know, I've gotten enough feedback on my Twitter feed that basically all suggest you, let's just quit beating up on Dave Meltzer. We know he's a, he's a fucking idiot. And this is just another statement. If I tell you what I really feel, it sounds like I'm going off on Dave Meltzer and then I'm obsessed with him. I I don't want you to do that. I want you to say, is this the first time that WCW received money for television rights? No. Okay. Again, just wrong. The other key reasons the company was profitable are a major video game sale, which without it, the company, even with all the changes would have still lost money this year. And the fact that the pay-per-view money from Halloween Havoc and Star Starcade 94 didn't come in until 1995, while the 95 Havoc World War three and Starcade, which produced far less profit will count on the 1996 books. In addition, ridding the company of big salaries like big Van Vader, Steve Austin, Rick Steamboat, and Dustin Rhodes in particular have been mentioned as a reason the company didn't lose money. Although the theory behind paying someone a big salary is that they're worth that much and more in revenue coming in, or they shouldn't be getting that big a salary to begin with. Um, because Dave is such a, just an experienced hands-on businessman. He does. I mean, he's certainly, he's operated big companies. He's certainly been at the very top of some of the largest publicly held companies in the world. If anybody knows finance and WCW's finance, it would be Dave Meltzer. Alrighty. Um, big deal though. I mean, you're finally profitable. It's a big deal to you personally. It's high fives all around. Um, you're pleased that we're finishing 1995 where we are fair to say. I really am, but not, I, I mean, for all the reasons you would expect, you know, certainly, you know, I'll start off with my ego. Cause that's what everybody would think. You know, I wanted to be the guy that would, you know, turn the company around, be the first one to make a profit. All that is true, by the way. And I was very happy about that. And I was very proud of it because it all happened in a very short period of time. And that's the one thing, you know, I ma- made a note 
towards the end of my notes when I was watching is it's really amazing to look back at this now and to imagine where we were in 93 and, and, and knowing where we were at this point from a business point of view in 95 and really in 24 months, we had really turned the company around in so many ways. I mean, we all think of, including myself, until I started doing this with you, you know, everybody kind of looks at 96 as the real, you know, pivot point for, for WCW. And it certainly was for a lot of obvious reasons. But when I go back and I'm looking at this, because what I see and what, what comes back to me in watching these pay-per-views uh, over at WWE Network isn't so much the matches it is, obviously, but it it re- it reminds me of what was really going on behind the scenes and and things like you know the first dollar profit and the bet that I made with Harry Anderson and him showing up in the Mexican restaurant. My biggest thrill, honestly, what I was most proud of, wasn't the fact that I was the first guy to do it or or any of that. It was the difference that you could see in WCW employees. And I'm talking about people in the office, and you know, that were based in CNN Center. That up until this point, they had to walk around feeling like you know unwanted, you know, stepchildren, you know, at the family gathering <laughs> that nobody really wants there. Um, that was kind of like the prevailing vibe that you would have at WCW because they were losing money so badly, and because of all the other silly things that went on there. And to all of a sudden, within 24 months, turn things around to the point where WCW employees were proud. I mean, if they kind of finally felt, see, we told you we could. And that to me was, that was the biggest rush, really was. And and the momentum that we were able to carry off of that feeling of, of you know, pride and confidence in themselves and not feeling like they had to hide whenever they went downstairs to lunch. Um, it, it really had a big effect on people. It's interesting that, um, this is the year you turn a profit because the metrics show that attendance is down 8% and live house gates are down 45%. And there's different theories. You know, we've talked about this before. You can manipulate the numbers to sort of tell the story and support the narrative that you're looking for. You just pick which one we've talked about that specifically with ratings where, you know, a guy on the street comes in and says, Oh, we're number one in our demo, but that's, can I stop you right there though? Sure. How, how would I, how would Eric Bischoff as president of WCW, how would I be able to manipulate books? No, I'm not saying that you are. I'm saying it's interesting that the company is turning a profit, but when you look at attendance and gate, it's down. And so most people would say, well, how are they more profitable? Well, because you're getting television rights or you've got a new video game. You've got all these other revenue streams. And when you just look at two of the metrics, those can be down, but it doesn't paint the complete picture. So if you're just saying, well, attendance was down and ratings were whatever, you could certainly say, well, business must be down because, but that's not the full story. That was no, no, it's not in the full story. Um, if, if you, if you were really looking at WCW's business at that point, one of the biggest stories was the revenue that we were booking for international television rights, which went from basically non-existent in 1992 and 1993 to high seven figures, almost into eight figures. And that that was revenue that had never existed before, which had a far more dramatic impact on WCW's numbers in 1995 than anything else. 
If you remember going into my meeting with Ted Turner and Harvey Schiller and Scott Sasso, which led to Nitro, um, that meeting happened where, where Ted Turner basically laid Nitro on me. I didn't know it was going to be called that, but basically told me to take two hours of prime time on TNT. That meeting took place sometime, I guess, in May or June, right? And that's and the reason I wanted that meeting. If you go back and read my book, or I'm sure we've covered in this broadcast, but for, for the people who like to take the Dave Meltzer view of the world, go back and look at, at what I've documented many times in many places. The reason I wanted that meeting with Ted Turner is because I knew I was so close to turning a profit back in June, just based on projections and deals that we already had in place. I wanted to try to convince Ted, which sounds weird even when I say it, I wanted to try to convince Ted Turner to allow me to do a deal with Star TV over in China. Because that deal, and it was a seven-figure deal, it was worth about a million bucks, that million dollars would have been the turning point. That would have made the difference between making a half a million dollars and not. So we were close enough in June that I was willing to risk my neck to go into Ted's office and ask him to do a deal with his worst enemy, Rupert Murdoch at the time, because that's how close we were. So the, what was happening wasn't the television revenue that was basically to offset some of the cost of production. So WCW as a division wasn't producing, um, two hours or three hours of primetime every night for TNT without being compensated for it in some way, because those shows cost us about $200,000, $250,000 to produce. That was just the cost of it. So the the real change in financial landscape had almost everything to do with international licensing and there were some video there was some video game business there I think it was with THQ but it certainly wasn't the majority of you know the the revenue that really made the difference was international TV Let's talk about uh, another line item that I've always been curious about Michael Buffer at the beginning of December Meltzer reports that you guys gave him a bit of an ultimatum that he needed to choose UFC or WCW because you felt like UFC was pay-per-view competition. What are your memories of that? Non-existent. <laughs> it, it didn't happen. It's not that I don't remember it because I have bad, a bad memory. It's I don't remember it because it never happened. We never gave David, I, I, I got our, <laughs> excuse me, Michael. I never had a problem at all with Michael. There was never an ultimatum. There was never even a difficult negotiation. He was the classiest, nicest person I'd ever done business with. And by the way, all my negotiations were with his attorney, not with him. Um, but, but Michael obviously directed his attorney and I, I had no issues with Michael whatsoever. Okay. Let's talk about, uh, some things leading into this Starcade. The December 11th nitro in Charlotte drew 3,900 paying fans for a gate of around 38,000. Uh, Brian Pillman's here making derogatory comments about Orndorff. And after telling flair and Anderson, how much he respected him, Orndorff told Pillman that he could, um, he could have been a horseman. And the only reason Pillman was a horseman is because he turned it down. And that of course leads to uh, a blow off and. They beat up Paul Orndorff and hit him with a spike pile driver on the floor. And they put a neck brace on him and carrying him out. And he's seen leaving in an ambulance on television. And this is effectively the end of Paul's in-ring career. He had suffered some neck injuries that he never really had taken care of back when he was working with Hogan and the WWF. And in time, you could see where some of those effects were causing some real problems in his arm. 
Uh, what do you remember about this angle to sort of give Orndorff a send off? Um, I mean, I, I can picture it very easily. Um, it, it made sense at the time. I, I talked to Paul a lot. Paul and I have become pretty close friends at this time. And he, look, I think I was thinking about this the other day. Wrestlers, Paul knew he had a job. Paul wasn't worried about getting paid. He knew he was going to you know, be an agent for, for WCW. But it was still really depressing for him, I think, as it is for a lot of guys who all of a sudden have to adjust to no longer being that character, no longer being out there. Because, you know, once you're out there performing, and I don't think it has anything to do with money, by the way. You know, you look at bands like the Rolling Stones. I don't think they keep touring because, you know, Mick Jagger needs more money or or Fleetwood Mac or anybody else. I think the reason artists, athletes keep going beyond their sell-by date is because it's just part of who they are. It's their identity. And I remember going through a lot of that with Paul. You know, it was hard for him, but he, he also knew it had to happen. You know, he was losing, he had a lot of nerve damage in his hands and he just wasn't able to work out and, you know, he knew it. He just, it was hard for him. That's all I can remember, you know, in discussions with him was just really emotional. Let's talk about, uh, the first time I remember seeing a Hulk Hogan sting tag team, uh, here on Nitro, the main event is going to be. Hogan and Sting against Flair and Anderson. Of course, Hogan's going to get the win. Savage is going to be involved. But there is uh, a storyline here that maybe there's been some miscommunication between Hulk Hogan and Sting. And Meltzer would sort of freestyle, and, and maybe this isn't. I want you to set the record straight. It certainly seems like you're on a roll with Meltzerisms today. Fans in the first few rows that were given Hogan merchandise to wave around, all the stuff you see at the uh, show is planted. At the end of the show, they were ripping up the bandanas and throwing them at Hogan. Chat me up. Was that something you guys would do? Go ahead and plant some merchandise and an opportunity or in a hope of, you know, trying to get a guy over. Sure. Absolutely. Kind of like giving them signs that you want them to, to, to use and, you know, picking out certain members of the audience because they're, because of the way they're dressed or because they happen to be very enthusiastic and you want, you want to try to get a camera shot with them. We do all kinds of that stuff. It's called television. Um, are you at all concerned that maybe Hogan is stronger in some markets or others, or is it more of a concern that, Hey, uh, maybe he's getting a little stale. Cause he's not even on this Starcade show that we're going to cover today. No, he's not. And look, I think it's fair to say that we all recognize, including Hulk, he, he was misfiring. The red and yellow thing wasn't working. It's right. not a secret. He's admitted it. We've talked about it at length. Uh, you and I have talked about it before. You know, when Hogan came in, there was a lot of financial reasons why it made sense. And by the way, look at where we are largely because of Hulk Hogan um, from a business perspective, as I said, I think in last week's show, you know, we were able to all of a sudden now do deals over in Germany with networks that we weren't able to do business with pre Hulk Hogan. We had a deal with canal plus, which is the largest, most prestigious, uh, network in, in Europe. 
um, or at least it was then, it probably still is. You know, these are all big money, seven-figure prestigious deals. We were able to attract sponsorship for the first time through Randy Savage. We were able, to, we were just able to do so many things. The video game deal with THQ that you referenced. There were a lot of really big deals that all happened, not because of the number of stars that our main event matches got from Dave Meltzer necessarily, but because of the perception within the business community where WCW was growing to. And those deals started compounding and, and helping to make us profitable and successful. So while, you know, people can say, well, Hulk Hogan didn't really do it. You know, he wasn't over in 1995. And, you know, he was killing the business. He was costing WCW money. He wasn't costing Turner Home Entertainment money. He was costing WCW money. Um, he, he was, but he was making us more money than he was costing us which is why we were profitable in 95. But we also recognize, I'd be you know, really disingenuous if I didn't admit this or talk about it, Hulk Hogan knew he just wasn't getting the reaction that, that he was. You know, I knew it. So one of the reasons why a year before, you know, the 96 Bash at the Beach event, I went to his house to try to convince him to turn heel. All of, the, all of that stuff was taking place in 95. That's what's so fascinating about this particular episode is just so much of what was going on behind the scenes. And obviously, you know, now we know where it ended up, but it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot going on in this episode or this during this period of time. One of the things going on is um, Meltzer is commenting that you were very sick during a nitro, and that's why you were sort of off your game that night, but he did say you were still worlds better than Vince McMahon was on the other channel, but he also said, and this tickled me, Bischoff continually watches raw on a monitor that many fans in the building can see during the live show. So if he acts distracted on commentary, that's why. Is that true that you would actually no. watch raw at the desk? No, it's just, uh, here's. This, uh, I'm, I, let's, just, uh, let's just keep he, going. No, I'm gonna, right. I, no, I'm gonna do the same breathing exercise that they teach you teach you in Lamaze. Well, they didn't teach me; they taught my wife. But I was there. You go he 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 pa he he he, he pa. Okay, that's a Lamaze breathing method that's supposed to relax you. Here's the fact. The only people that watched Raw were in the truck. The only reason people in the truck watched Raw is because we wanted to fuck them every time we had the opportunity. We wanted to be in action when they were in a commercial break. We wanted to, knowing that we were head-to-head -head with them and knowing that we had the latitude that we had with our network, we wanted to format our show so that we could be relatively certain that we were going to be in the hottest parts of our action, particularly during like the nine o'clock transition hour and then going to in towards the end of the episode or end of the show. Um, but in between all that, we really wanted to maximize our stuff. And by making sure that maybe we'd extend the match an extra minute, you know, it was, maybe it was planned for eight minutes. We'll, well, we're going to take it, you know, nine, nine and a half so that we can hit the commercial break in action. That way we were able to retain our audience and not lose them to, you know, when, to, to what was going on in WWE. That's, that's why the guys in the truck watched the monitors. I did not watch the monitors out on the desk. That is just ridiculous. Let's talk about, um, public enemy, uh, 
Meltzer would write, they're going to be on the January 23rd clash from Las Vegas against the nasty boys, but there is some problem over the name. Originally they were going to be the Mac daddies, but now WCW believes it can use the public enemy name by going through Jeff Def jam, the record company that owns the rap group's name. Although Paul Heyman claims he has rights to use the name in wrestling. What do you remember about this public enemy controversy? I really wasn't involved with it too much. That was a eternal legal thing. I remember there was an issue, but look, here's, here's the deal. And I love Paul Heyman. There's not too many people in the business today that I respect more than Paul Heyman. However, you know, Paul Heyman, anybody that's ever worked with him, everybody that's anybody that's ever known him well knows that, you know, he, he is very creative when it comes to the truth and what he wants people to believe is the truth. Just because Paul Heyman said that he owned the trademark um, doesn't mean he did. And not too many people that knew Paul very well back then took any of those claims very seriously. So it would have just gone through Turner Legal. And if it would have been true, we would have worked around it. If it wasn't going to be true and Turner Legal told me I could run with it, we'd run with it. But it wasn't like I wasn't involved with the process at all. Let's talk about um, the rumor and innuendo that you were at least considering the idea of doing bi-weekly live shows and taping the other week, similar to raw, but you wanted to keep the full court press because you felt like maybe you had Titan on their heels. Was it ever even discussed that maybe as a cost cutting measure, uh, you may have gone every other week live. No. Okay. That wasn't, I mean, the, the mandate from Ted Turner was live every week, Monday night, head to head with raw. If, if I would have gone back to Ted, especially after we had success and go, Hey, Ted, yeah, I, yeah, I know we're, we're, we're kicking WWE's ass and you know, I know we're actually making money, but now I want to change the game plan and go every other week. How's that sound, Ted? (laughs) That's silly. It's just, again, it's, I don't know where this stuff comes from. I don't know why it's not even interesting. If you're going to make shit up, make shit up. That's fun. I'm not going to, I had a really fun one, but I'm just going to let no, it go. No, come on. Come on. Bring it up. Come on, big man. Bring it on. It's going to make me mad. Let's talk about something that's going to uh, get everybody talking. The December 18th nitro Augusta, Georgia, pretty big moment in wrestling history. Although you've maybe debated that Medusa returns to WCW. She was the former Alundra blaze in the WWF and, uh, she's back here now. And she walks to the announcer's table, calls herself Medusa. So she's always been Medusa shows the WWF women's world championship and then puts it in a garbage can saying that's what she thinks of the WWF and it's woman's title. She even says WWF by name, uh, her WWF contract expired on December 13th and Meltzer would say it was well known within the WWF that she was negotiating with WCW and her contract wasn't renewed. So technically she was fired and JJ Dillon sent a letter midweek to all Japan women canceling. Alundra blaze versus Kong, a match that was scheduled for the Royal rumble saying that blaze's contract was going to expire and not be renewed. Uh, what do you, uh, I mean, chat me up here. Tell me how this all comes together. It's obviously what a lot of people Medusa herself would say it was the first shot across the bow in the Monday night wars. And I know you have in more recent years said, I don't know if it was that big a deal. Well, come on. I, I think the first shot across the bow in the Monday night wars might have been going head to head with Monday night raw. Sure. I mean, in the big scheme of things, you know, you compare the decision to launch a two hour live 
show to go head to head with the WWF on TNT, which is the premier Turner network at the time still is. I think that, you know, in a, in a, on a scale of one to 10, I don't think you could put Medusa showing up with the women's championship and throwing it in the trash on the same kind of measuring uh, platform or use the same platform to measure as you would launching Monday night nitro. So let's just be honest about that. I love Medusa. She's a good friend. She's a great friend of my family's, my kids, everybody, Lori, everybody loves Medusa and we love her back, but come on, (laughs) it's kind of put yourself over just a tad much. Well, talk to me about how it came together. Did you give her a call? Did she call you carry me? No, she, she called me. Keep in mind, Medusa and I had been friends since 87. 88 in AWA, we both pretty much broke into the business at the same time with Vern Gagne. You know, she was a local Minnesota girl, uh, Robbinsdale girl, where everybody was from, it seems like. Um, so I, I had known Medusa for a long time, and we had been friends for a long time. I had worked with her in WCW. I had worked with her in in early in uh, – I had worked with her in AWA, obviously, but I had worked with her in WCW when I was just an announcer. You know, we'd, re- we'd been friends for a long time. And I didn't reach out to her. And I, and I know her story and mine are going to be different here. You know, it just – it is what it is. But um, I didn't reach out to her. I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in Raw. I didn't necessarily have, you know, this huge need to, to bring in a woman at that point. Um, but Medusa called me. And because we were friends, you know, she didn't have to ask twice. She let me know that – um, she wasn't going to be continuing with, with WWE. I said, great. You, you know, you've got a home here. You know, I would figure out a way to bring her in because a, she's a good talent and B, she was a good friend. So I, yeah, I would have made that move. And I did. Um, she's the one, now this is where her and I, well, we're going to agree to disagree. I didn't know she had the belt. Mm. She told, and she said, oh, by the way, you know, I still have the woman's belt. Now at that point. I will admit 100% culpability here. I did it. I did it. I shot JR, the Dallas one. Um, I did say, well, make sure you bring that belt with you. But she's the one that brought up the fact that she had the belt. I didn't say, well, Medusa, I'm only going to hire you if you bring your belt so we can trash it. See, I think what Medusa wanted to do, and look, I've said this before. Some of my closest friends remember things differently than I do. That's okay. That's 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 what happens over time and telling and retelling and rehearing stories over and over and over again. Cool. But from my point of view, um, what I remember very specifically was that I I got the phone call from her while I was while I was at TV. You know, one of the Monday one of the Monday shows is when she called me. And she called me through Janie Engel. So Janie handed me the phone. It was Medusa. That's when she let me know, you know, she was going to be staying at, at WWE. She was dying to get out of there. I made it quick and clean and easy for her to understand she had a gig. We probably talked about money. I think I paid her a buck and a half. Um, she said, oh, and by the way, I got the title. And that's when I said, make sure you bring that with you. And I knew what I was going to do the minute she said that. But she did bring it up first. I didn't ask her if she still had the title. She brought it up. So she was complicit. What did you think of the segment? I loved it. Still do. Was it- <laughs> I watch it. I watch it whenever people send that thing to me all the time. Um, I thought it was a great segment. Was anybody sort of 
poo-pooing the idea like, oh, you don't need to do this. There was a lot of that. You know, it started, It's it's it really started when I started giving away finishes. When we'd go up before them and I'd, <laughs> I'd give away all the finishes sure. uh, for the show that was there that night. There was a lot of guys. Look, it made sense. You know, the you know, the talent, they never knew when they were going to be let go from one company or the other. They always wanted to keep the door open <laughs> with another company just in case they ever had to go find work. You know, when WCW and WWF were really the only two places to make a living, um, guys were always very careful not to go too far or say the wrong thing. Uh, when it came to Vince McMahon, they were still, a lot of guys were still intimidated by him or afraid of him or afraid of, you know, what the feeling would be back in New York if they said or did something that was, you know, perceived to be a slight against them. So when I started doing it, even though I didn't really care, I never thought twice about whether or not I was going to go to work for Vince McMahon at the time. Um, I didn't care. I had nothing to lose. So I did it. But, you know, a lot of guys didn't really want to be standing too close to me when I did. <laughs> it was like, oh, you go, you're going to do that. You go do that. But, you know, we'll do our promo together later. <laughs> do you remember? And it was, it was the same with the belt thing. You know, it was another one of those moves that I think in the eyes and, and look, justifiably. So I get it. If, if you were an Arn Anderson, for example, and I'm not suggesting that Arn, you know, pitched a fit or anything. He, I don't know how he felt about it, but guys like Arn, uh, or even Rick, although <laughs> Rick kind of did the same thing years earlier with the WCW belt. But a lot of guys were who were more traditional in, in the way you do and don't do things in the wrestling business were probably a little put off that I did it. And do you remember having to try to talk uh, her into it, or was she cool? No. She, she, like I said, she brought up the – she <laughs> – she brought up the fact that she had the belt for a reason. I, I mean, she she was already on the same train of thought that I was. She never had any just, second thoughts, though. Like people didn't get in her ear and say, "Are you?" No, okay. no, no. Now I'm sure, <laughs> as she was about to be inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, and people asked her about it backstage, I'm sure the story that came out was probably a little different than the way I remember it. But I get that. I get it. I do. Uh, let's also talk about, uh, the main event of that show It's the world title, Randy Savage and the giant. Um, eventually we see Hulk Hogan come out and gets involved here. What's the relationship like with Hogan and Savage towards the end of 95? Uh, it was still pretty good. I mean, there, you know, it was always, I don't want to say day to day with those, those two. Um, but it was a little bit, there was a lot of drama and it was all personal stuff. You know, they could have, you know, run into each other at the gym and Hulk, you know, may have forgotten to say, Hey, Randy, or vice versa. And one of them would have stormed off (laughs) feeling slighted. The next thing you know, I, you know, they won't talk to each other at TV. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that that ever happened, but those kind of things happened with those two guys. They were like brothers. They really were. And they'd get along for, you know, like long periods of time. And then all of a sudden some silly little shit would happen and they'd be feuding for a week or two and then they'd be back in love again. So it was a, roller coaster with those guys but from what i remember 1995 they were they were fine let's talk about another controversial figure mr mark madden uh Meltzer would report that he was actually fired for a few hours from the hotline because you canned him uh, apparently uh, i'll read it directly here it wasn't until late in the day when someone in the office actually listened 
and Bischoff freaked out when Madden pointed out that Hogan was booed in Charlotte and wanted him out. However, Nick Lambros, the company lawyer said it wouldn't be a good idea legally since everything Madden says has to be first approved by the company. And he recorded it well ahead of time and nobody bothered to check it out until it was on the books for days. Uh, he was also ordered to never talk about the UFC again on the hotline. So you can imagine that that piece of business that's reported in the observer probably came from Mark Madden. Um, what do you remember about this? Hey, you said that about Hulk, you're fired incident. It wasn't so much about Hulk. It was also about UFC and Mark was Mark was a, he, he was a explosive, colorful, um, personality. He pushed you the know, limits. It, it, huh? He pushed the limits. Still does. Still does. And, and that's why I hired him by the way. I mean, I knew what I was getting into with him. Um, and he had from time to time, we had a hard time keeping him under control. And this was one of those times. And yeah, I did lose it, but it wasn't just because of Hulk Hogan. That was part of it because he had his own agenda. You know, he, 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 like a lot of people who lived in the, in the publications, I won't even call them dirt sheets. Cause I'm trying to just start the new year off. Right. Um, but a lot of these online publications or publications before online, um, they all had this anti Hogan kind of vibe to them. Many of them did. And Mark certainly had his version of that. And I, you know, whether you were a huge Hulk Hogan fan or not, if he's the guy, that's the reason we're able to hire you, you know, put your personal feelings aside and go with the company line here, promote the products we're trying to promote. Don't go into business for yourself. And Mark went into business for himself a lot. Uh, another person that allegedly went into business for themselves on the hotline is being Gene Okerlund, where he says on Christmas Eve of 1995 on the hotline that you guys are going to be honoring Ricky Steamboat at a retirement ceremony on January 1st. Now, allegedly, none of this is true, and Ricky Steamboat gets wind of this and is not happy about it because he doesn't even work there. How does something like that, that far out there, wind up on the WCW hotline if it's not true? You know, I'd have, you'd have to ask Gene Oakland and I can't tell you where he got that idea from. I really can't, you know, I didn't run the hotline, you know, uh, obviously I'm responsible for what, or I was, was responsible for whatever went out the door in, in that respect. But, um, I can't tell you where Gene got that idea, probably reading a wrestling publication that comes in the mail would be my guess. I, you know, I don't, Gene, Gene, I mean, he said some pretty crazy things and he did go into business for himself and he did really exaggerate things. You know, it's the nature of Gene, I guess. Um, and the way he came up in radio and in WWF, but uh, for the most part, he wouldn't make stuff up. He might take a kernel of truth and build upon it. Like some people we know, but he didn't, uh, he didn't make things up. Well, let's talk about Missy Hyatt's lawsuit. Uh, in early 96, Meltzer would report Missy Hyatt's lawsuit against Turner Broadcasting World Championship Wrestling and Eric Bischoff was legally, quote unquote, concluded, which is a nice term for settled out of court over this past week. By virtue of the agreement, terms were undisclosed and discovery material and the depositions were remain confidential. Hyatt said she was happy the 22 month ordeal was over. And even though material in the depositions must remain confidential, the legal conclusion won't stop her from writing her planned tell all book on her experiences in wrestling and the Turner organization. There's no truth to the rumors that Hyatt, who is now working as vice president for paradise films has been contacted by the WWF, uh, to be a proposed sister love character. 
Uh, as a reminder, Hyatt 32 filed suit against TBS, WCW and Bischoff claiming unequal pay, sexual harassment, and wrongful termination in her dismissal in WCW in early 1994. So we've never really talked about this on the show. We've touched on it in a live show, but what happened with Missy Hyatt? When we brought Sherry Martell in, and I, I mean, it was at a, um, Disney taping, actually, at Disney MGM Studios earlier in the summer. And we had the opportunity to bring in Sherry. Well, at the time, Missy was the only female, really, other than maybe Terry Runnels that was getting some camera time. But Missy, I think, was our only real uh, female manager. And, and she liked that. Um, when we brought Sherry in, Sherry just showed up. You know, there was no, nobody knew she was coming in. There wasn't a lot of fanfare about it. Didn't end up in the dirt sheet or anything like that, that I can remember. Uh, but when she showed up at Disney and, and I, I was standing nearby when Sherry walked through and, you know, I could see Missy from about 20 feet away. Missy just looked like she'd seen a ghost. I mean, all the color drained out of her face. Her eyes got as big as silver dollars. Her jaw dropped. And you could tell she just was really, really not happy that Sherry was there. Because now there's going to be somebody else there getting the attention. And Sherry was Sherry. Sherry was a star. Sherry had, you know, she she was legendary, you know, amongst the boys and, and the fans. And she was so good at what she did. And, of course, Missy knew that. So she pitched a fit. I mean, she to the point where I, you know, I, I, I ran, got into a. We sent her away. We sent her away from the MGM studio because she was just being a, she was being totally unprofessional. And then that evening, um, she confronted me uh, in front of my wife, in front of my two kids who were like eight and ten at the time, whatever they were, very young, and in front of about thirty or forty employees of WCW. Because when we we'd go down to Disney, I have to set the stage here a little bit. We'd go down to Disney, and then we'd all stay at a, a Marriott Residence Inn. We'd book like whatever, however many rooms we needed, 200 rooms for production, wrestlers, staff, whatever it is, we'd book it. And every night when we get done taping, usually it was about 4.30 or 5 o'clock, everybody, and, and a lot of guys brought their families, a lot of the talent, a lot of the production staff brought their families or their wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever. So it was a real, there was a real family vibe to everything. And we get together when we're done, and rather than having catering at, at the soundstage, we would have dinner at the Marriott. We'd have guys would bring grills and we have some commercial people there cooking for us. And it was really, there's a swimming pool and everybody was hanging out, having a great time. Well, you know, in comes stomps, you know, Missy as she comes walking up to me and just started going off on me, questioning why I was bringing in Sherry Martell and who did I think I was and on and on and on and on. And I just said, you need, you need to walk away like now. And she stormed off. And next thing I knew we were getting sued. Wow. Now she's going to allege lots of crazy stuff in there. Like people touched her inappropriately. And I know somebody posted a picture of her where she had a wardrobe malfunction. Any merit to any of that? The best, you know, well, the person that she accused of, of touching her inappropriately was me. And I believe she claimed in her suit that while she was discussing the Sherry Martell situation with me uh, in front of my wife and two kids in broad daylight in front of all my employees, I reached out and uh, grabbed her breast. 
most people that are listening to this podcast know Missy Hyatt, what she's made of, what she's done with herself since, and who she really is. Most people who knew Missy Hyatt when she filed the suit knew exactly who Missy Hyatt was and why she was saying what he, she was saying. Um, so, I, I, you know, it, it, it pissed me off in a way, but it was so absurd and everybody knew it that it really didn't bother me too much. And it, it was just Missy, you know, she, she was, she was getting displaced by a much uh, more talented performer than her. You know, the, the thought that Missy Hyatt, you know, that I would want to reach out. I mean, she's a horse face. She, in my opinion, she always was. And she's been passed around more than a freaking joint, you, you know, at a Grateful Dead concert. So the idea that I would reach out and <laughs> fondle her in broad daylight in front of my wife and my two young children and, you know, 30 or 40 WCW employees is a little stupid. And anybody that thought about it for a second knew that. It's pretty brutal the way you talked about Missy Hyatt there, but I, I guess Why? You, I, I don't know. Just Why? I, don't, I don't know. Making fun of her appearance and insinuating that she had been passed around and it's not very I'm polite. Not, well, I'm just calling it as I see it. I'm sorry. I'm not angry. I'm not hot. Are you? No, it's just kind of, no, mean, kind of mean. I don't think it was mean. She was a horse face. Oh God. I don't think you can say Do you, that. Did you disagree? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I you don't, thought I, she was. I, I, you I, thought she was attractive. I don't think you can. I don't think you can call women horse faces. Just freestyling. No, not t- not in today's environment. We're talking about ni- we're talking about 1995. <laughs> I can get away with a lot of stuff in 1995. <laughs> well, I think she alleges you tried to. So, <laughs> and, and and by the way, wait till we get into the rest of the the audio track on this particular pay per view, talking about things you couldn't say in 2018 that you oh could get away God. with in 1995. I, every time I'm listening to this show this afternoon, I'm going, "Ooh, don't say that! Oh, stop it! There's, oh, there's, somebody's going to get hurt." so much anti i mean so much stuff that's just it's so over the top i mean you want to you want to take a time travel trip into what was acceptable culturally in 95 and where we are today go watch the show wwe network starcade 1995 the non-politically correct version (laughs) my goodness let's talk a little bit about uh something that well, I don't know how to bring it up, but after the first of the year, uh, it's going to come out that Terry Balea was being sued by a woman in Minneapolis. And, uh, a lot of people are going to say that this was an extortion plot. Uh, she is, she filed suit. I believe he was served on like Christmas Eve. And now he is suing her back claiming extortion. And this is a big mess where there are allegations that he had inappropriate behavior going back to the era of the first nitro. And it all sort of comes to a head here at the end of the year. Uh, I know that he's your buddy and I know that there's a lot of legal stuff involved here. What can or can't you or will or won't you comment about? Well, (laughs) I can comment on the report you just or the statement you just made all of which was true um there were those complaints and allegations and lawsuits and all kinds of stuff floating around at that time um what i can't tell you 
is whether they were true or what to degree they were true or not true. Um, I believe they were not true. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't there. I, I, I couldn't tell you one way or the other, but just looking at the circumstances and knowing Terry the way I knew him then and know him now, um, if he would have done it, he was, he would have, he would have said, I did it. I mean, he's, he's never, I don't know. I didn't believe in them. I didn't believe them to be true. He was certainly adamant that they weren't. There was no evidence, no proof, no witnesses, no anything to support the claims. So I made a decision, and my decision was to believe him and support him, and nothing's changed to this day. He didn't waste any time filing the countersuit. As I said, he was served on December 4th. He filed lawsuit on January 4th, so 10 days, which includes Christmas and New Year's. So, I mean, he was on it in a big way. Uh, he's claiming that, uh, they're trying to extort money out of him by accusing him of engaging in criminal conduct and threatening him with prosecution. And of course they want to settle for millions of dollars. And it is, uh, it's a, it's a rough situation because in a way, even though it doesn't involve WCW, it kind of does because the lady Kate Kennedy is believed to have worked in public relations for Hulk Hogan's pasta mania which is inside the mall of America where the first nitro took place. And the story goes wide way back then all over Minneapolis for sure. But even USA today and television shows like a current affair, which are, I guess are like uh, tabloid TV is what you would call it. Uh, it, it gets, it gets everywhere. And we're not that far removed from the steroid scandal. And it just doesn't, it's not a good look for Hulk Hogan. Uh, is there any concern from higher ups at Turner about this lawsuit coming out? And, and do you guys have to have any sort of conversation with Turner about this pending litigation? No. Okay. No, we weren't named in the suit. And again, it's, it's an allegation. It's a law. It was a lawsuit. They were looking for money. Um, I, it didn't affect WCW. It didn't affect Turner. And despite what one might think, it really didn't. I mean, the news came and it went and it, it, it stayed gone. So it really wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, it was for Terry, obviously. And sure. I'm not suggesting that it didn't, you know, cause people, you know, concern for a few moments, but it didn't really have any impact on us. Well, no doubt it had, it had an impact in his household. I can't imagine when that pops up on Christmas Eve, that's, that's a tough spot, brother. Chat me up. Um, when do you find out about it? Does he call and give you a heads up then after the countersuit? Uh, when and how do you find it? It feels like something he would have just told you directly. Uh, we talked on a pretty regular basis. So I, I'm sure I heard about it within a day or two of, of, of it happening. Uh, let's get to Starcade. That's why we're really here. Uh, it sells out about an hour before the show starts. So it is a sellout. 6,018 fans are going to pay just over $83,000 at the gate. Uh, in a match that started at 6 PM and it was announced on television and in all the ads that the show was beginning at 6 30, they get started a half hour early, which is nice. Diamond Dallas page beats Dave Sullivan and gets one star. Then the American males would beat the blue bloods when Scotty Riggs would pin Bobby Eaton and Meltzer would write much worse than you'd think with Eaton looking really bad, which I don't think's ever been written before half a star. And then we're off to a pay-per-view that I think. It's maybe one of the most interesting starcades ever because 
it's a weird show where Hulk Hogan has really been the center of the company since he's been here. He's not on the show and historically Starcade is some, I mean, and this is something I've wanted to talk about with you for a while, because I think we fans have always sort of looked at Starcade as like the major show. It's your WrestleMania it's your granddaddy of them all. It's supposed to be the culmination of all these storylines and blow offs of angles. And that's certainly what it was at the beginning. But you've even said here on the show that internally you sort of always saw, and maybe the company did Halloween havoc as the major show. When did that shift and did it feel weird? Cause this isn't the first time that you've had sort of an international flair with Starcade. They did the whole battle bowl concept once before, and that was a miss and we're trying it again here. And they did another tournament, uh, with, with flair and Muda and others once upon a time. So you're definitely making this a spectacle, but maybe not the big payoff show, the big WrestleMania show. When did that feeling change or was it ever the case that you felt Starcade was supposed to be the big show? It never really was. I understand why it was for fans who grew up watching, you know, the first one in whatever year that was, 1983 or whenever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I understand because it was at one point, you know, the spectacle, right, or, or the event for NWA and then WCW. I get that. But keep in mind, um, in 92, 91, 92, 93, what did Starcade mean? It wasn't – it was another blip on the radar. It wasn't doing well. It wasn't like the Holy Grail. It wasn't our – it wasn't WCW's big WrestleMania. It was just another pay-per-view called Starcade that may have had some great. It may have been launched in, in at a time and s- set up to be this, you know, huge, you know, spectacle at the end of the year and all roads lead to Starcade. But from a storyline point of view, that never happened while I was there, at least not very effectively. And I just didn't have the same legacy relationship with with Starcade that a lot of fans did, you know, in the southeastern part of the United States who would growing up watching it in NWA and now TBS. Uh, I looked at it as another pay-per-view. I looked at it as an important pay-per-view, you know, one of the, one of the more important ones. Um, certainly, you know, we, we, when I took over, we only had four pay-per-views and it was six and it was eight and it was 12. And Starcade always seemed to have a certain amount of energy with it that I, some of that I associated more because it was the end of the year and it was Christmas time um, than anything else. And wrestling has traditionally, or at least early on, it done, always done well on Christmas pay-per-views and live events, or at least over the Christmas week. So I looked at it as a tentpole type of event in that regard. But um, I always looked, you know, I looked at Halloween Havoc as a bigger event, um, and it proved to be so. I looked at Bash at the Beach as potentially one of our larger tentpole events. Um quite frankly, bigger than Starcade, or at least that's the way I saw it because of the potential it had. But I, like I said, I can understand why people felt differently. Let's get to the matches here. Jushin Liger pins Chris Benoit in 10 minutes and 29 seconds. Meltzer would say, while not at the level of most other matches in Japan, this was an excellent opener with stiff action and great moves back and forth. Liger played the subtle heel. Uh, ultimately it gets four stars, but I got to tell you, I fucking hated the finish when I watched it back here, Kevin Sullivan comes down for some unknown reason and distracts Chris Benoit and Chris Benoit then takes the, maybe one of the world's worst hurricane runners from Jushin Liger. Uh, certainly the worst I've ever seen him do, 
but that's the finish and it gets the pin, but still it's a hell of an opener, but I just, man, I didn't like the finish. What'd you think when you watched it back? Same exact thing. The notes I made to myself, you know, watching that match as it opened up. First of all, it was a very, it was a match that I would expect from Chris Benoit and Jushin Thunder Liger at that time. Chris was at the top of his game. So was Liger. They had worked, you know, they'd worked many, many times in Japan. So they were super familiar with each other. And, and I knew the chemistry would, would be right. And my final note was the same as yours. It's like, how could you fuck up such a beautiful thing? You know, it was like a perfectly executed Japanese style match. You know, there's, there's differences in, at least back then, there was a big difference in the feel of a really well executed Japanese style match um, from what you would see in an American story or, or presentation of that match. This was perfectly executed all the way up until the time of the finish, which was just the, such an embarrassment. I don't know who came up with it. If they're still alive, they should flog themselves in a corner. Um, it's horrible. It was just horrible. I hated it. I hated it worse than you hated it. Well, it is, uh, it is pretty cool to see that Jushin Liger was in this show. Of course, the first time I saw him, uh, was wrestling Brian Pillman at uh, super brawl way back in the day. It was maybe one of my favorite matches where I didn't really know sort of what work rate was. And I didn't appreciate all the nuanced stuff that smart marks who listen to this show really appreciate. I just knew, man, that was a fucking awesome match. And it's fun to know that still now, all these years later, Jushin Liger still not retired, still wrestling. What do you think Liger could have done in WCW? Had you brought him over full time? I mean, you had such great success with the cruiserweight division. Was there ever consideration to bringing him over and making him a bigger part more full-time? No, you know, that was the nature of the relationship with new Japan is we were both, you know, number one, very respectful, respectful of each other's talent pool. And there was a limit to how much time new Japan could, um, part with Liger, you know, new Japan had their own business to operate. Jushin Thunder Liger was one of their bigger stars. So, it, you know, unless the, I would have worked it out with new Japan and he had enough time in the schedule to do so, which he didn't, um, there was no way to make that happen. So no thought was really given towards it. I'm, uh, secretly. I'm glad that it didn't happen because you would have found a way to take his fucking mask off and that would have ruined first day. I would have, I would have waited a week or two and then absolutely. I would have taken that mask off and make sure we got to look at that cute little face and that way, you know, he, he would endear himself to the American audience. And it would, he would have been so much more over without that mask. Can I just tell you the first time I met him, <laughs> a, a lot of people were going over and, and trying to, you know, get pictures or autographs or, you know, the, he just had a lot of fanfare and I fucking had literally no idea. I mean, if he did, if he didn't have that mask with horns on, I don't know who that is. I have no idea. So I like it left a little to the mystery, but I know that, uh, you don't really dig that. Uh, next up, we've got Koji Kanemoto working with Alex Wright. Uh, we just covered Alex Wright last week when we talked about Starcade 94. It was his pay-per-view debut. And uh, here, uh, Koji's going to go up to nothing. So two matches for New Japan, zero for WCW. Alex Wright in a losing effort. Meltzer really dug the match, though. He gave it three and three-quarter stars. Uh, nearly 12 minutes here. But my favorite part of the whole thing is when, for some fucking reason, the fans start chanting USA, USA for a German guy and a Japanese guy. 
Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> what, what did you think of the match? I thought it was pretty good. You know, the only note I made to myself during this match, because they were pretty even, really, um, and they both did a good job. Uh, Alex in particular, because, he was, again, he was so green, and it was fun to watch him up his game to this style of a match. Um, but, uh, you know, the note I made to myself was Alex should have never gone to the top rope. He was just too gangly. You know, I, I don't, he looks like he has about a 46-inch, you know, inseam. He's got legs like a fucking giraffe. So when he goes up to the top rope, it just looks awkward to me. It it looks slower than it really is because he's got so much leg. Um, he, he just never looked that great coming off the top turnbuckle. But everything that he did on the ground, I thought, looked great. Uh, Koji is actually the IWGP junior champion during this match. Um, and he was the third version of the legendary gimmick Tiger Mask. Uh, and we just recently lost dynamite kid. And I think most people remember him for being one of the British bulldogs and his series matches with tiger mask. Um, how big of a, a legend was tiger mask in new Japan pro wrestling? You know, I think tiger mask was prior to my real involvement with new Japan. Um, he, he was certainly, I, I mean, I knew who he was. I didn't really get it until recently until, um, I watched a documentary about him. Um, it was, it was, it was fascinating, but obviously he was a huge legend there. It's just, he he didn't end up in my world. Um, because I didn't, by the time I started working with new Japan, he was kind of on his way down. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the next match here, because these are two names that everybody is probably going to be familiar with Lex Luger and Masa Chono and Masahiro Chono loses here. It's the first match that, uh, new Japan would lose Lex gets a win in six minutes and 41 seconds with the torture rack. And the crowd was really into him as a baby face. Meltzer would say, I think the reason the heel turn didn't work was because he turned on Hogan who most fans don't like and Savage who most fans associate with Hogan and thus also don't really like not nearly as bad as I expected. Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan were making fun of Tony Schiavone as the two were doing their finish star and a quarter. You know, I don't know what people expect with a Lex Luger match here, but as far as Luger matches go, at least it was short. I didn't hate it. And I certainly thought it was maybe a little better than star and a quarter. What'd you think? Yeah. I, I thought, again, you, you got to take into consideration what you're, what you're watching. You know, Luger's not going to go be able to go out there and have, you know, a match like a Chris Benoit or a Jushin Thunder Liger. Uh, that's not his deal. Even though he's working with Chono, Chono worked a very American style. I mean, if you look at this match and you compare it to, you know, the, the Eddie Guerrero match that we're going to talk about in just a few moments, or you compare it to the Liger Benoit match, or even the Alex Wright match, you know, you're just not going to get that for what it was. And for a guy like Lex and Chono at that point in his career, I thought the match told a good story. I thought the match was exciting. By the way, so did everybody in the arena that stood and cheered at the end of it. Um, Now, what was interesting, and interesting to hear Dave's rationale or logic behind why the heel turn didn't work necessarily with Lex, I did notice that the fans you know, were really pro-Lex, but they were also pro-Benoit. They were also pro-Alex Wright. They were pro-anybody that was against the Japanese because it was that same USA, USA, you know, factor from the audience. They were going to support the home team, 
whether it was a heel or a baby face on the home team. So I think the great reaction that Lex got was because he was the first American to win, not necessarily because of the flawed Hogan turn or the perception of Randy being friends with Hogan. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe he's right about that. I'm, I'm, I just I think it had a lot more to do with the dynamics of the New Japan versus WCW and WCW being perceived as the home team. I think it had a lot more to do with it. Well, Masahiro Chono, uh, we're probably familiar with most of our listeners, myself included, from joining the NWO a year later in December of '96. Uh, he has since retired, 2014. Uh, clearly a Hall of Famer, uh, former IWGP Heavyweight Champion. He held the tag titles a bunch. Uh, he even wore the NWA title, the big gold belt when he defeated Rick Rude in a tournament final in 92, um, quite a run for Masahiro Chono. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Any good Chono stories you can share with us? Nothing funny or humorous, but you know, in the time that I did spend over in Japan and I think there was one trip in particular, you know, I brought Lori with me and was in the spring. It was in April during the cherry blossom festival festival and Chono and a couple of the executives from new Japan rented one of these really big, uh, sightseeing boats. It was a, a luxury boat, you know, that probably seated 200 people and served an amazing dinner on. And I just remember one night sitting with Sonny and his wife and my wife and a couple of execs, you know, Masa, Masa Saido and, and his wife, Michi. And we were all together and just sailing down the river, you know, looking at the cherry blossoms in Tokyo in the evening. It was, it was an amazing trip. All my business dealings with Chono and my personal dealings with him were all uh, things that I, I, I value quite highly, actually, in terms of my overall experience in the business. Next up, we've got Johnny B. Bad working with Masa Saito. And Johnny B. Bad's going to win, even though it's by DQ. I can't imagine that Masa ever spoke to you again after this. Uh, Diamond Doll comes out, and Meltzer would say, as a WWF Sunny knockoff doing gymnastic routines out of fitness pageants. And uh, then she got the lame put down battle going with Sunny Ono, which ended up doing her no favors. Ono, who was at ringside for every Japanese match, interfered freely in this one. And the styles clashed as bad as a hotspot wrestler and Saito at 53 is pretty much washed up relying on facial expressions. And at that age, after 30 years in pro wrestling, obviously isn't fond of taking big bumps. Uh, half a star is what he gave as a rating here. Uh, what'd you think of this match again for what it was and who was in it? I didn't think it was that bad. You know, Johnny was. Clearly, um, the Japanese style wasn't something he had a lot of experience with, you know, and Johnny was still relatively new. It wasn't like he'd been in the business for 20 years at this point. So Johnny had, you know, limitations. Saido certainly did at his age uh, in the style of matches that he was used to working. I think they did the best they could. I think that the, I'm still confused by the finish. I mean, I, I, for the life of me, I watched it back three times. I listened to the commentary. I'm trying to figure out how that happened, uh, which is essentially Saito, or excuse me, uh, Johnny getting tossed over the top rope by Saito and, and Sonny. Um, 
it wasn't even tossed over. It was, it was, it was a clusterfuck. It was a horrible finish, but no, Saito, despite the fact that the match wasn't that great and Johnny was a pretty green worker, Saito just loved to work, you know, and he loved to work in front of the American audience. I, I first became aware of Masa Saito as a wrestling fan in, in, in Minneapolis watching the AWA when I was 15, 16 years old is when I first became familiar with Masa. He, he teamed up with Ken Patera and, uh, he ended up in jail. In, in Wisconsin for throwing a big boulder through a plate glass window at a McDonald's because they wouldn't serve him one night. Ended up doing a couple of years in jail for that. Uh, that's how I first met Saito. And then I you know, subsequently worked with him in, in AWA. And now fast forward, here we are in, in WCW in New Japan. And Saito is my primary point person, or my point person, I should say, in New Japan. You know, Brad Ringens is the liaison between us but Moss is the guy that I'm doing 75% of my negotiation with and my business with. And he was just happy to get out and work. He loved it. He was, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. And I, uh, he, Masa passed away a few months ago and Michi, his wife and, and my family are still friends to this day. And we stay in touch and she told me about what happened. And I, I shared with her in an email, um, you know, what Masa meant to me and, and the experience that I had with New Japan and, and with them on a personal level and how it affected my kids and how much I valued the, the memory and how much I respected Masa. And she wrote me back, you know, it was several weeks later because she was really torn up. She still is. She's still having a hard time. Um, but she wrote me back several weeks later, maybe a month, month and a half later, and said that she was so touched by what I wrote in that email that they actually read it at the service for Masa. And that really touched me. And we still stay in touch and I'm going to try to go over there in February for the uh, Masa Saido Memorial. There's going to be a big wrestling event there. So Sonny and I are talking about going over there in February just to reconnect. That's a great story, man. Thank you for sharing that. Let's, um, let's talk about the next match here. Probably the match of the show. Uh, it's going to get four and a quarter stars here. They get 13 minutes and 43 seconds where Otani pins Eddie Guerrero. A lot of people still talk about this one. Uh, maybe one of the better matches that we saw at a Starcade. certainly the best match on this one. What'd you think? I'm going to watch it again. I mean, it was, I was blown away. I was blown away. I mean, I don't know that ma- if that match could happen today, God were willing, and we could put that match on today. That match would stand up to any show in any company, any place in the world today. And we're talking about 23 years ago. You talk about being ahead of your time. You talk about being on the cutting edge. You know, this match had everything. And what's really interesting, Conrad, is over you know the holiday. You know, Christmas and a couple of days after I'm kind of, you know, you get bored sitting around the house doing nothing. So I start, you know, going back and forth with fans on Twitter, sometimes just for the fun of it. And sometimes you get into some really interesting conversations and somebody posted a couple of days ago, you know, 
their frustration, I'm going to paraphrase it, but their frustration in that, you know, all matches now are just nothing but high spots. Nothing means anymore. There's no good stories anymore. And I kind of posited the question or the statement, you know, it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be, it's all high flying, crazy, athletic, super, you know, crazy moves, suicide moves and no story. There's got to be a way to find that balance. And, and we went back and forth on, in that discussion. It, it, in my opinion, it's not so much that it can't be done. It's just people have chosen not to do it or don't feel the need to do it, that they've replaced good storytelling and psychology in a wrestling match with shit that makes you go, ooh. And that's, that happens. It's just the evolution of the business. But I think there's going to be people who are going to rise to the next level who are capable of delivering that kind of um, – very progressive, highly evolved, athletic type of high-flying match, but still have good story. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And then I watched this after going back and forth on Twitter, and then I sat down to watch this show, and I went, that's a perfect example. I mean, this match was a perfect example of believable, well-executed, super athletic, high-flying, fast-paced, stiff action, but it still told a great story. In the ring. And this this would be my example of what wrestling could and should look like in 2019 and 2020. Because it is possible. And these two guys did it in 1995. There you go. If you haven't already, go out of your way to go find this one. It's a hell of a match. Uh, Otani is going to go on to be the first cruiserweight champion in March of 96. He would defeat Benoit in the finals of that tournament in Japan. And uh, Benoit is working there as Wild Pegasus. Eventually... Otani would go on to lose the belt to Dean Malenko. Uh, he would win the wrestling observer, best technical wrestler award in 99. He did the J crown, the IWGP junior title. He even held the WWF light heavyweight title once he's still not retired. Uh, but this is about as good as it's going to get, go out of your way to watch it. Uh, one that you might be able to skip is the next one. Randy Savage and Tenzon go six minutes and 55 seconds. Savage gets the win. With the elbow off the top rope, Meltzer would say that either Savage's back and arm injuries are so bad, which makes him so limited, in which case he needs to take time off because he's doing nobody any good this way, or he needs to get out because he didn't do a thing and had a 24-year-old guy with limited experience carry him. Fortunately, Tenzon did a much better job than you'd think under the circumstances, even letting Savage kick out of both his mountain bomb and headbutt off the top rope finishers before missing a moonsault. Savage did one sloppy move that Tenzan had to sell for way too long before he climbed to the winning elbow. Three quarters of a star, and Meltzer hated it. What did you think? I didn't hate it, but it certainly didn't. Uh, it wasn't something I was proud of. You know, it wasn't something I, I, I want to go back and look at again. I think it's pretty obvious. Randy, Randy was limited by a couple of injuries. There's no question about that. But Randy also wasn't known for being able to work a great Japanese match, a Japanese style match. So I think there was a, a little bit of just, you know, I don't want to say conflict of chemistry, but just a conflict of styles. You know, Tenzan didn't work a lot of American matches, American style matches um, would be my guess at that time. So it was just a little bit, of, it was awkward. That's, that would be the, best way I could say it. You know, and I, I was looking at the replay and oftentimes when I go back and look at these things, I, I look at them more now as a producer and I look for the mistakes that were made from a production point of view. Um, 
but as I looked at this one, this one was just, it, it was forced. That's the best way to say it. It just felt forced. Yeah. And it is disappointing considering he's the champ, but he's still not done. He's got another match and maybe he was saving some. We'll see. We'll get there next up. We've got sting and he's going to, uh, lead WCW to the promised land because he wins. This makes it four wins for WCW, three wins for new Japan as Kensuke Sasaki has to submit to the scorpion death lock. And six minutes and 52 seconds, which awards the world cup to WCW. Um, what do you think of the match? It got three stars in the, uh, observer, uh, Sasaki at the time was the United States champion here, the WCW United States champion, but it's a non-title match. Uh, he had just won that belt from sting a month prior over in Japan. Uh, what do you think here? I really liked it. I, I think that was that was one of my favorite sting matches um, during that period of time. He was on fire. He was very confident. Um, he, I mean, just physically, his timing was excellent. His promo was great. You know, he just had so much. And his tan was fucking awesome. There was just nothing about him that I could point to and say, mm, if he would have just done this a little better. <laughs> I love you. For that. I said he had a great tan. I heard you. And, Con- and Conrad heard. goes, "Oh no, not a tan." Sorry. Let's talk about the uh, the presentation of the trophy. This is fucking weird. A little bit, is it not? You got a lot of the guys who were in the uh, on the WCW winning side. Uh, Meltzer would say all the wrestlers in the previous matches except Savage came out with nobody explaining why Savage wasn't there. Benoit was there and looked like he had no clue what he was supposed to do since he's a heel from Canada out there as a, basically a part of a team America during an American flag waving ceremony. Uh, what'd you think of the uh, trophy presentation here? Which I mean, he, they try to get a comment from staying and it's just whatever. What'd you think? Well, I, I think the whole, you know, Meltzer, you know, ascribing Benoit's awkwardness to the fact that he's a Canadian at an American event. I don't know. Do we see Americans who are on Canadian, Canadian hockey teams <laughs> supporting the team that they're on, you know, standing for their national anthem? I kind of think you do. So that childish, that juvenile kind of commentary um, is what it is. I'll just leave it at that. I think the reason he felt awkward and I did notice that he looked awkward and felt awkward in that shot. And it was, by the way, you're right. That was just a horrible scene. It was so poorly executed. It should have been something done really, really well. Um, and it was done like an independent wrestling show. No offense to independent wrestling shows, but they generally don't have big budgets or the ability to do special things. And we did. And we just chose not to for whatever reason. It was that I was a little embarrassed at. It should have been a much, much bigger moment, particularly because I really wanted that World Cup of Wrestling to be an annual event. You know, the goal, the vision, the plan at this point, at least in December 95, is that we wanted to establish this World Cup of Wrestling as something of a regular type of an event that we could do back and forth between WCW in the United States and New Japan in Japan. So we would have World Cup of Wrestling events in both countries, ultimately. But it, it, it was really poorly, poorly executed, and that's all on me. Okay. I was about to ask, who would you blame that on? But oh, we got our answer. Uh, next up, we've got Ric Flair winning a triangle match over Sting and Lex Luger in 28 minutes and three seconds. And the weird thing about this to me, and I know it's a little thing, 
It stings out here for the trophy presentation, but doesn't just stay. He goes to the back and then makes another entrance right back out, which I felt was a little weird. Um, Meltzer would say that it went way too long and was boring with a horrible finish and a dead crowd for the last 10 minutes. They do go too long. It's 28 minutes here. Um, Meltzer really gives it a lot of heat here saying the two start talking and the fans went to sleep. Uh, what do you think here of this match? Don't disagree with Dave on this one. It's just, you know, and it's funny with talent back then, at least. And again, I, I was still pretty, I was learning on the job. Let's put it that way. And I would listen to as many different opinions of things as I possibly could and kind of weigh them out and try to decide for myself how I felt about certain things. But one of the things that I recall dealing with often is that certain talent, they want more time. They believe they can tell a better story with more time, especially on a pay-per-view. It's like they're fighting for every last minute they can get, and they squeeze every last second out of every last minute they can get. And more often than not, they went over their, their time allocation because talent really believed that they could tell a better story. But, you know, looking back at this now from, as I said earlier, you know, when I look at it, I look at it from a production point of view, almost every, in fact, I don't even make the note anymore. I make it so often I'm, I'm not even going to do it anymore, but everything we did took too long. You know, it's like the best part of it. You know, if you would have just ended it 10 or 12 minutes earlier and picked up the pace a little bit or eliminate 50% of the silly shit that goes on in a match that doesn't really do anything for it, you know, and, and just tell a great story. Um, this match did go on too long. And the minute that happens, you, you just, you, the, you just feel it. The audience just, the air goes out of the room and, and it did for me here too. Well, let's call it like it is the talent who felt like they could tell a better story with more time is Richard Flair. You got to, Hey, you, you, you got to have dinner with him. Not me. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying it ain't Lex Luger. <laughs> Let me just tell you, it ain't Lex Luger. So <laughs> no, by, it's by, not by it's process not. of elimination. It's all Richard. Uh, it's not, and it's, and it's not out of selfishness. It's, no, no. it's the opposite. That means they have to work harder for longer. It's just their perception of when and how they can connect with an audience and, the director's perception of what it takes to make that happen. And sometimes there was a gap. what do you think of, um, the finish here? Because the finish is, um, flare thrusting over the top rope, which should have been a DQ, uh, and he clips Luger in the knee and then he tumbles out of the ring. When the ref is eventually revived, he counts. He doesn't see somebody get thrown over the top rope. So it's not a DQ there. Flair doesn't lose it that way. Instead, he counts out both Sting and Luger. So Flair wins by double count out. And it was Lex Luger holding Sting to keep him from getting in the ring. And that, of course, is going to lead to some problems. Jimmy Hart, who was Lex Luger's manager against Chono, but not in this match, comes out and congratulates Flair, I guess, for screwing the guy that he manages. I don't know. What do you think of the finish? Up until the time Jimmy Hart came out, which was, I don't want to talk about it because I know it sounds like I'm picking on Jimmy and I'm not. I like Jimmy. He's a great human being. He's done a lot of great things in the business and still does. However, if I never see Jimmy Hart on TV again, it'll be a minute too soon just because he forced himself. He's any, he, that's what he, Jimmy did. I mean, if there was a camera and a red light, there was Jimmy Hart in some kind of tie-dyed suit 
you know, screaming at the top of his lungs, acting a fool. You know, look at, I don't, I don't want to go on and on and on about that. What did I think about the finish up until the point Jimmy Hart came out? I actually, I sat there and I watched it. And usually I try to make my notes really quickly. So it's just my instant reaction to something. But in this one, I, I watched that finish and I had to sit and think about it to, de- to determine how I felt about it. Now, I'm probably overthinking it and breaking it down from a producer's point of view or what would I have done differently, you know, kind of a perspective. I think if they would have eliminated the Jimmy Hart piece, it was totally unfucking necessary and way more unproductive than anything else. Um, the thing that bothered me most is – let me tell you what I liked about it. It was completely different. It, it could have been a very believable – in a much more interesting finish for me as I'm watching it on television. Now this might not have helped in the house, but if you go back and watch this again on the WWE network and look at the, look at the finish, look at Sting's reaction to Lex Luger when they're both down on the floor. I know that there was kind of like a little bit of subtle, you know, what the hell, you know, coming from Sting to Lex, but it wasn't enough to make the story complete or the picture complete, you know, had, had Lex and sting been more animated and, and make that tension more obvious. So the, the viewer doesn't have to go, I wonder what they're talking about. Are they mad or not? They're mad. Is sting mad or is he not? Is sting concerned that his buddy is hurt? Is Lex injured? You know, those are all distracting type of questions that, that take away from the finish or dilute the finish. It should have been obvious to the viewer. Now, again, in the arena, not everybody would have been able to see that because they were down on the floor, you know, kneeling down, bent over, whatever. Um, but at least at home, if those guys would have kind of executed their role a little bit better – I think if the camera, if you go back and watch this, you know, Rick is announced as the winner and then he just walks around the ring apron and kind of makes his way down the stairs and the camera doesn't get a a shot of him going, holy shit, I can't believe I just won that. No one should have been more surprised that he won by count out than Ric Flair. I mean, it could have worked. I, I, I could see now if somebody said, Eric, here's the scene. How can we make this work? I think there would have been a way to make that finish work because it was such a unique finish that it allows for belief. If it, you know if things catch you off guard just a little bit, you, you have a tendency to pay attention to them more or start figuring out how that could have happened as opposed to a typical finish that you've seen like 300 of them just like that in the last, you know, six months. But I think if you come up with a really creative way to finish that match that really, you know, paints the picture in broad strokes, fluorescent colors, as opposed to the kind of nuanced subtlety that we saw between Lex and Sting, I think the finish could have been really good, especially if we would have caught a great shot of, of Rick really reacting to, to the count out. If he would have sold that count out and the camera would have spent more time on him and we would have seen how happy he was or whatever, it could have worked. It just, it didn't. And it fell flat because of that. I got to admit as an old school WCW fan, it was kind of cool that we had sting Lex Luger and Ric Flair in, because that feels like something that would have happened in 1990, not necessarily 1995. So 
cool for the old school fans, but the match was way too long. But the next one's not. Uh, Ric Flair has earned a world title shot against Savage. That's going to happen immediately. So they go eight minutes and 41 seconds. And unbelievably, Ric Flair actually wins. Uh, Jimmy Hart is in Flair's corner. Meltzer would say, which makes sense since Hart is with Luger, who was feuding with Flair and was screwed by Flair in the Dungeon of Doom, who hate the Four Horsemen. What the fuck? I agree. <laughs> I, I fucking agree. I mean, talk about the dumbest shit. I, you know, and I can't tell you the number of times I'd want to grab two fistfuls of my own hair. And back in the day, I had a ton of that shit. I'd want to grab two big fistfuls of my own hair and slam my own face into my desk over and over and over again. Why you ask what would make me feel that way? It would be Jimmy Hart coming into my office and nitpicking the littlest shit. Oh, Eric. Oh, baby, 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 baby. I mean, these guys, they got to wear different color tights. They, they, they oh, I'd say addict. Oh my gosh. We, we got to put, we got to put them in different color tights, baby. Cause they look too similar. Oh my God, baby. It's going to be horrible. If we don't get that change. I said, okay, Jimmy, fine. We'll, we'll change your fucking tights. Whatever. Go tell him to ch- get a different color. Oh, thank you, baby. Thank you, baby, baby. So he would nitpick the shit out of things that were particular to him, but somewhere along the line, he had no problem of throwing himself out there in front of a camera with no logic, no reasoning behind it, no booking behind it. If you just said, Jimmy, when the red light goes on, you know, be Jimmy Hart, he'd be out there, <laughs> you know, and it just, it kills him. And, it, you know, Sonny Ono too, If I, that's another thing, another note I made. If I had to do this show all over again or try to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish with this show, I get the idea of the story, you know, the storyline that Sonny is somehow behind New Japan or involved with New Japan and trying to orchestrate a financial takeover of WCW, right? This is pre-NWO, so got to put it in the right time frame. I can, I can get all that. But Sonny should have not been out there for every match, and neither should Jimmy. Um, or as many matches as Jimmy was, we could have been way more effective had we set Sonny backstage, you know, in what looked like an office or at least huddled up with a couple of, cause there were a lot of Japanese executives there. It wasn't just Masa Saito. There were a few of the Japanese, um, staff there, you know, at this event and he could have been huddled up back in a corner with them and they could have been speaking in Japanese and we wouldn't really know what they're saying, but it would be apparent that these guys had a lot on the line and they really cared about the outcome. The Japanese group, same, same with WCW. It could have been so much better and it would have eliminated Sonny being out there, being a part of every entrance, being involved in as many matches as, as he was involved in the shit that he did with Kimberly in the Masa Saido, Johnny B. Bad match. You know, Kimberly called him hop sing. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you, if you remember that, you know, um, it's just, you know, Kimberly referred to Sonny as a geisha girl. <laughs> I mean, it was there was so much silly shit. And by the way, their, their stuff, Kimberly's stuff was horrible. Kimberly went on to be, went on to become pretty good on camera. This wasn't the night she didn't go on to become good on camera this night. It was really, really forced and awkward and stupid and didn't take any, didn't add anything to anything, but I really wish I would have not put those guys out there as often as I did. Either one of them. And Sonny's my best friend. You know, I'm tight with Sonny to this day, but ugh, I hated it. If you can't tell, it still bothers me to this day. What do you think of the flare match? He's bleeding like a stuck pig here. Um, it is interesting that there's this much blood for what didn't seem like that big 
of a spot, but well, the spot was horrible. I mean, yeah, he, he gets hit with a megaphone and he is just gushing. Paul Orndorff yeah. is out it, here it, ringside wearing a neck brace just to keep that fresh in everybody's mind. Of course, there's going to be, you know, lots of other stuff with Brian Pillman and lots of interference, but in the end, star and a half is the rating. Uh, flair is your champion as recognized as his 12th world title win. Most people would count it as 14 though. Uh, what do you think? I've never been a big fan of blood, especially copious amounts of it. Um, the, the, the shot that flair took with the, with Jimmy Hart's megaphone was so weak and non believable that it just, it went from bad to worse, but the, the megaphone shot shot was really, really bad. I noticed it immediately and I knew what was going to happen even before I saw it happen. <clears throat> and when flair came up looking like somebody, you know, cut the top of his head off, it was just too much. It, it really turned me off and not because I'm having a wee stomach or anything like that. It's just, you know, it, it, for me as a fan and even looking at it as a producer, um, you, you gotta make me believe you just, you gotta, to, if you want to get me excited, you know, Otani, Eddie Guerrero, you know, Benoit Liger, uh, up until the goofy finish, um, you gotta do things that make me believe, allow me to forget that I'm watching wrestling scripted wrestling. Just let me get into it. And the finish of this match took me out of that state of mind. Wouldn't you, um, I don't know how we're going to ask this, but Meltzer says that flair winning the title was Hogan's decision. And I know you're going to get mad about that. And Rick says he wasn't told until right before the show started. When did you know that flair was going to leave champion? And did, did that have anything to do with Savage uh, working hurt? I don't know that the, the Savage's injury and Ric Flair winning the title were related in any way, shape, or form. I, I, I don't think they were. Okay. That would be a stretch. As far as when I knew, probably by Wednesday or Thursday of the week before the pay-per-view, it's not like we got to the pay-per-view and go, okay, what are we going to do today, guys? Now, it doesn't mean we didn't change our minds as WWE does to this day. Sure. It, did, it does, didn't mean that you know injuries, opportunities, good ideas, bad ideas, missed flights, <laughs> whatever, forced us to change things on a day of. Uh, any number of things could have. Um, but generally speaking, we had a pretty good idea what we're going to do Wednesday or Thursday. We, we might not have laid out finishes. A lot of times that didn't get worked out to the day of, but in terms of who is going to win the title, um, that's something that we would have discussed at at the very latest Wednesday or Thursday of the week before. Let's talk about, uh, the dark match that's not on the pay-per-view. And this is an interesting spectacle to say the least. It looks like Sasaki retains the U S title to one man gang in an unannounced match. And the storyline here is that Sasaki wouldn't defend the title in the U S which is why the sting match was made non-title. And now of course they're going to have the belt change hands. But even when they do that, Sasaki kicks out just before the three count. But Gang still grabs the belt and raises his own arm. But then the ref takes the belt from Gang and restarts the match. Sasaki winds up with the pin and is announced as the winner and leaves with the belt. But 
we're told that one man gang won the match and he's the new champion. And allegedly a lot of this has to do with Japanese politics at the time, because Sasaki's a big star there. He's going to lose two matches on the same show, which isn't good. And even though it's one thing to lose to someone like sting, it's another thing to lose maybe to the one man gang. It gets a dud rating, but chat me up about why this was done, how it was done. Clearly the plan is to re-edit the footage, but how do we get to a, a schmoz like this? Well, I didn't see the match. I can't really come on, comment on it too much. And your, your recollection of it, your reporting on it is kind of news to me. So all I can do is imagine what was going on at the time. Um, look, there was never, it really wasn't difficult at all to, for the most part, I got to qualify that for the most part. I would say eight times out of 10, getting the finish that we wanted out of the Japanese here in the United States was not that difficult. They, they weren't trying to protect too many people. Now they would, there were certain people because of a storyline that they were in or something that was going on. They, the Japanese felt occasionally that they had to protect somebody. And the same was true with us. We, we never really put up a, a bitch. I didn't when I would go over there because we knew our guys were going to more often than not get beat. That's just the way it is, <laughs> but it didn't hurt anybody. You know, this was, you know, the dirt sheets were around, but this was before streaming. This is before a lot of stuff. So a lot of the things that happened over in Japan at an event, uh, nobody in the United States really knew that it happened. Let's say right, right about it in a, in a publication. Um, which only a fraction of a fraction of the audience did for the most part, you know, it, it happened over there, but nobody knew about it. And if we didn't want to exploit it or use it in a story, we just didn't. If it's something that fit into a story, then we would use the footage and replay it here in the States. So neither company really had that much trouble or difficulty because the Japanese audiences, television audience didn't see what we did. They didn't get our pay-per-views. They weren't tuned in to the, the domestic product unless the Japanese use footage to help promote that talent over there, just like we did here. So it really, you know, I don't know if Dave was just trying to paint a picture of the politics or if maybe he's, you know, maybe taking the, the challenge a little bit too far to, to get creative. I don't know what, what his motivation was, but it really never was that big of a problem. Meltzer would say that, uh, WCW officials were so happy with the undercard that Sonny Ono and Masa Sieto negotiated the next day and came to an agreement to use Japanese talent more often on pay-per-views in 96 and also to do a world cup again next year. Of course, as you said, though, the world cup idea never happened again. Uh, you just watched this for the first time in a long time overall. what did you think of the concept? what did you think of the pay-per-view? That's a tough one to be honest about because I feel two different ways. And I think as a concept, as a vision, I really wish we would have built upon it. I wish we would have done a better job executing it. I wish we would have done a better job promoting it and building some story into it. I wish we would have done a better job executed, for example, with the, the cup celebration, um, those are all things I wish we could have done differently or done better. But as a concept, I think the idea could have worked 
had everything else fallen into place the way I wanted it to at the time or hoped it would at the time, it could have been a, a kind of a long-term deal that could have been, could have had great, uh, a great outcome could have been, could have been a hell of a deal, but it wasn't executed properly. And by the way, I don't know who reported that Masa and, and Sonny got together and negotiated 1996. That never happened either. Sonny didn't negotiate on my behalf. Sonny was there as a translator when I was negotiating. And Masa and I didn't negotiate right after this. So I, I don't know where that came from. It's not really important, just a point of fact. Um, this was, I think if it would have been executed properly and committed to over the long term, it could have been great. A couple more questions, then we'll wrap this up. Why was this show on a Wednesday? It feels really weird that there is a Wednesday Starcade, but there was. Wednesday, December 27th is when this show went down. Wow. I wasn't aware of that, that it was on a Wednesday. I forgot all about that. Weird, weird. I'm going to have to find out. I mean, that's a really important question. It's a very important question, which probably goes a little bit to buy rate because people were not conditioned to watch pay-per-views on Wednesday nights. Now, granted, maybe the logic was, look, everybody's off between Christmas and New Year's. So every night's a Sunday night, I guess that could have been, you know, one of the choices I would guess without looking into it more deeply. And I'm going to, my guess is there was a conflict on the following Sunday. My guess is somebody else had that pay-per-view time. Well, that will be my first guest. The following Sunday, I believe would have been new year's Eve. So I understand why you wouldn't want to do it on new year's Eve, but, right. but even a Saturday night, you know, I don't know, but Either way, no, you're right. You're, you're right. Any night of the week, but a Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, especially uh, in Nashville, which I know is, is weird to say, but you're in the Bible belt. There's a lot of people who are going to be in church and not at wrestling and especially so close to Christmas. I don't know, but, but let me ask this too. Hulk Hogan's not on the show, but he does wrestle Ric Flair at the very next nitro in a title match. Why wasn't Hulk Hogan on one of the biggest shows of the year? Cause we only had him, I believe in 95, he was only scheduled to do four pay-per-views a year. That's what he was budgeted at. He was paid. He was even the majority of his income came on a pay-per-view basis. Also of note, the very next nitro is when the billionaire Ted skits started. I don't know when we'll talk about that again. What was your reaction when you first saw the billionaire Ted skits? I thought, you know, I thought they were funny. Um, it, it, it didn't really irritate me. I guess it was kind of like, wow, they're putting us over. They mu- it must be driving them crazy. Um, I was more concerned about the talent involved, you know, Randy and Hulk and, you know, wrestlers don't like, I mean, you know, your father-in-law, you, you don't want to, he was a guy, by the time Rick Fletcher turned 40, you didn't want to talk about him in a retirement match or, or being too old for anything. You know, guys get a little sensitive about it as they start getting into their forties and their fifties. And, you know, the way they portrayed, you know, our guys is all old, broken down guys. You know, I knew that that would probably affect him personally. I get it. Um, but I wasn't angry about it. I, you know, despite the rumor and the innuendo and the false reporting, I didn't like lose my shit and, you know, blow a gasket and scream in the office. And I took him to Ted Turner, Harvey Schiller. And I took him to Ted and Ted laughed his ass off. Ted laughed like, like a kid. I mean, it was, he thought they were fun as hell. So I think if Ted's not hot, I got nothing to be hot about. Well, I'm sure I'll find something to get you hot about next week. We appreciate everybody listening to 83 weeks this week. 
We're going to pull up right now over on Twitter. If you haven't already, go follow us over there. It's at 83 weeks. And if you haven't checked us out on Patreon, I don't know what in the world you're waiting on. Eric's doing lots of extra bonus content over there. Incredible amount of content for a very small price. I think it's just like nine bucks a month to go ahead and take a look. Check it out. It's patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks and set your calendars, man, because this coming Friday, January 4th, just a few days from now, it's new Japan pro wrestling's largest event of the year. Wrestle kingdom 13. It's already sold out right there at the Tokyo dome, but I'm going to be watching on fight. This year's Wrestle Kingdom 13 main event features Kenny Omega defending his IWGP heavyweight title against Tanahashi. Plus, the Intercontinental Champ, Chris Jericho, is going to be defending that title against Naito. Also in action, Okada, Cody, the Young Bucks, and all the great stars of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Don't miss it, and Fight is the place to see it all. All four hours of the live action are going down Friday, January 4th at Fight.tv or on the Fight app. Do what I did. Pre-order the wrestling event of the year, Wrestle Kingdom 13. Start time for all the action is 3 a.m. Eastern, 12 midnight Pacific, but you can watch it live or on demand as long as you've got the fight app. Do what I'm doing. Download this app on your phone. Get it on your Apple TV, your tablet, or just watch it over on fight.tv. But don't you dare miss this new Japan show. And Eric, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to, uh, or a couple hours, in fact, to break down a new Japan WCW pay-per-view Starcade 1995. It's been a blast. I'm glad you picked this one. It was fun to look at and I may even go back and watch it again. So thank you. And Hey, it's been a good year, Conrad. I want to say this in all seriousness, um, really appreciate the work and the effort that not only you, but your entire team, because there's a lot of guys that are, that are responsible for the stuff that you're involved with, with Tony's show and Bruce's show, guys like, you know, Dave Silva and Dave Hancock and Jeff and, and, and the entire team you got working for you. And I really appreciate it. It's been fun doing this show this year. I look forward to it every week, even the, even on the shows that you piss me off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just want you to know that in all sincerity, thank you very much. It's been a great year and I look forward to, to 2019. No, man, we, we wrestling fans, myself included, because although I'm on the show, I'm really just the first listener. We appreciate you opening yourself up and subjecting yourself to this. Not a lot of people would let a fucking super fan just scream their guts out about, you know, this decision-making process that existed in the mid nineties, but it was such a great time for wrestling. And the idea that we get to pick your brain and you're willing to take the lumps. It's really fun. We've had a blast and I've gotten a ton of feedback that said that you and I have really started to sort of hit our groove and I feel it. And I think this most recent string of Starcade shows we've done are some of the best podcasts around. And I hope that people are spreading the word and leave us some reviews and, telling their friends about it. But, uh, even though you were nice to me, I'm not going to take it easy on you because in January recovering sold out 1997, the worst looking pay-per-view ever. Oh, stay tuned. boys and girls. On that note, have a happy new year. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.